The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Our Father in heaven, pray that you would speak to us now in the preaching of your word. Pray that you'd give us grace to hear. Give us wonder at the glory of your wrath and grant sinners grace to repent this morning. Let them see the terror of your law and the threatenings of it. And let them see that their only refuge is in Christ and in his cross and his righteousness. Please be with us now this morning and please speak and bless this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we spent time studying the righteousness of God. We saw that God is the fount and the source and the standard of all righteousness. And we spent time applying God's standard of righteousness, especially to the realm of applied ethics, otherwise known as politics. I pointed out that the role of government given in Scripture is to defend and encourage those who do good and to exact vengeance against criminals. I pointed out that your governor seems ignorant of God's design for government, that he seems to spend all of his time doing everything besides ensuring justice is exacted and vengeance is taken against criminals. And I've shown that he does that especially in his pushes for an expanded welfare state and especially in pushing for the legalization of the murder of children in the womb. God is just and righteous and is not pleased when his ministers tasked with doing justice do injustice instead. This week we turn to the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not one of the more pleasant attributes of God we might consider, but it is one of his attributes no less. Maybe a fluffy, nice guy, God up in the clouds, with no hard edges, no anger, it might be more pleasant for a guilty conscience to consider. But it does not make that idea of God, that conception of God, any more true. Despite what your more genteel preachers might have you think, God does get angry with sin. And he doesn't just get angry with sin. He gets angry with sinners, people who sin. If you doubt that, read Psalm 5. It's written down. God is good and loving, but this does not make him a snuggly teddy bear. There's a reason one of the most prominent images of God in the Bible is a lion. Lions roar, they prowl, they stalk, they pounce, they tear and devour. They are fierce. As C.S. Lewis said, God is a good lion, but he's not a tame one. 
So let's come before God with reverence and awe and consider our God, the consuming fire, hot in his anger against sin and sinners. Before we go further, I want to make sure it's clear what that word wrath means. So many of the problems in our day, so many schemes and deceit and trickery comes about because when people say a word, they mean something different than what the accepted definition is. Or one person means one thing when they say one word, and another person means another. So I want to be clear what I mean. Webster's Dictionary provides this definition for wrath. Strong, vengeful anger or indignation. Another dictionary has forceful, often vindictive anger, vengeance as a manifestation of anger, fierce anger, vehement indignation, rage. That's what I'm talking about. That is what wrath is. And scripture is very clear. God is wrathful. It's one of his attributes. But don't take my word for it. Let's look to our text for today. The context for our text for today is the journey in the wilderness. Israel is out in the wilderness. The journey was long and hard and unpleasant. God didn't seem to be with them. They didn't have all the food they wanted, all the water they wanted. They wanted food and water. And they say their souls loathe the worthless manna God had given them to eat. This gracious provision to give them health and preserve them. The soul of the people became discouraged. They spoke against God and against Moses. Now, let me remind you, Israel was a slave in Egypt under Pharaoh. God had freely chosen their forefather, Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan. He didn't know God. He had no relationship to him. He was a foreigner. God set his love on him. Now, hundreds of years later, he continues. God continues to fulfill his promise to Abraham and his offspring after him. He turns Egypt's rivers into blood. He makes frogs and locusts come on the land and eats Pharaoh's crops. He send gnats, sends gnats and flies. And then finally, he kills all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And then at the Red Sea... When it seemed all was lost and the Egyptian army would consume them, God parts the Red Sea and they walk through it on dry ground with a wall of water to the left and to the right. But the Egyptians weren't so fortunate. They were smashed in the Red Sea. They were drowned, Scripture says. The people who grumble against God and against Moses are the very people who saw all of these wonders in Egypt. They're the ones who said they detested this food that God had graciously provided them. They're the same people who saw all of these things and yet a little while later grumble against him. Now you can imagine a parent of an adopted child. You don't know this child. You just set your love on them with no relationship to them. You move heaven and earth to go get them. Some people take planes thousands of miles to go get them. They're in poverty. They're hungry. 
Some of them just eat sugar water the first year of their life. They're helpless. Many of them starving. But you bring them home, you feed them, you give them a warm house. You nurse them to health. You pour your life into them. Try to raise them to fear God. And then imagine that one day that adopted child comes to you and they say, this food you're giving me is disgusting. I hate it. Why are you giving me this worthless food to eat, Dad? How can you give me this to eat? I don't, I don't trust you. And they spit in your face. Now, you've adopted the child, but are they acting like your child? Has your benevolent nature that you showed to go adopt them, has that grown up in their own heart? And if, if that happened, if you did that, you moved heaven and earth to go get them, and they spit in your face that way, would you rightfully be angry? God is angry in this text. He has adopted Israel. He's parted a sea to bring them to himself. And this is how they respond. They despise what he's given them. God is so angry, the text says in verse 6, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That's how angry God was. He pours out his wrath on them in the wilderness. Now you might say, well, that was in the Old Testament. And we're under the New Testament now. But as I've said before, I would remind you the same God wrote both Testaments. We may be under a New Testament, but we're not under a new God. It's the same God who wrote both God is who he is. There's no shadow or turning in him. He's simply divinity. He doesn't change from one time to the next. But don't take my word for it. Listen to Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul talks about some of these wanderings. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And then what does Paul say in the next verse? Paul says, now these things became our examples. They became our examples so that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. Paul is not saying that what happened to them is no longer relevant to us in the church of Christ. Quite the opposite. He's saying the reason that happened was to instruct you. It was to instruct the church on whom the end of the ages has come. 
so that we do not make the same mistakes and partake in the same evil. Paul says, all of Israel went under the glory cloud. They were all baptized in the Red Sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drink. They all experienced the blessings of the old covenant. They were all there. They all partook of it. Yet many of them did not know the Lord. And God's wrath broke out against them and scattered their bodies in the wilderness. Now, church, baptism is no surety of justification and life. Church attendance is no guarantee of eternal life. The Lord's Supper and partaking of it is no guarantee that you will see life. Sitting under the preaching of God's word, even week by week, is no guarantee that you will see eternal life. God requires Far more than that. Some of these men who fell in the Old Testament, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, they were priests. They were holy men. They were religious men. They took it seriously. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were priests. They were Aaron's sons. Aaron was Moses' right-hand man, chosen by God to be his mouthpiece when Moses said he couldn't speak. They were set apart for the ministry. They washed, they put on priestly robes and a turban on their head. They had the whole ceremony. They had blood spattered on themselves to consecrate them. Their father, along with Moses, just made sacrifices according to the exact specifications of God's law. God has, had accepted it. He consumed it in fire to show that it was a pleasing sacrifice. And all the people shouted and fell on their faces. But Nadab and Abihu apparently didn't fall on their faces. Aaron's own sons, they go further than God had commanded. They offer a sacrifice, but not one that God commanded them to make. And Scripture says, very matter-of-factly, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Now, isn't that a bit harsh and exacting? I mean, they're trying to offer God a sacrifice. Can't God show a little leniency here? They're priests. They've been set apart by the people. They're recognized as holy men. They're in a place of spiritual leadership. Mediators between God and men. They're priests. They're to teach people the law. You might want to make excuses for them. Say, well, surely they meant well. Surely they just misheard. God incinerates them on the spot. He sends fire to devour them. Is that harsh? 
God had not commanded it. They broke the law in front of all the people. They violated God's clear command. They offered profane fire, Scripture calls it. Worship must be according to the precepts of God's law, especially for priests and teachers. They're to teach people who God is, what he is like. And when they teach wrong, they not only keep themselves out of eternal life, they also prevent those who might come from coming in by teaching them wrong. It's a double evil. James 3.1 says, Not many should become teachers, for they will incur stricter judgment. And Nadab and Abihu here are an example. God must be regarded as holy. God must be glorified before all the people. And you can't make public worship about you. You can't make yourself a spectacle in public worship in the church. You cannot worship God irreverently. We can't worship God with unbelieving hearts. If we do so, we may invite the swift, devouring wrath of God. The God of the Bible is not to be trifled with. He's not a paper tiger. Scripture calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is a warning for us. God never just sweeps sin under the rug. He doesn't act like it never happened. He's vindictive in his wrath, exacting in his vengeance. His justice is very specific. Every sin will receive its just reward and punishment. Ecclesiastes 12:14 says, "God will bring every work into judgment." including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He will bring it all into judgment. If you want to keep the law for eternal life, you must keep every precept, every jot and tittle perfectly. Your whole life. Or you will be consumed. And the incident that I just spoke of is not an isolated incident. It's a pattern throughout Scripture. The flood of Noah, plagues of Egypt, fire and brimstone rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, Uzzah. When the oxen stumbled, he put out his hand to steady the ark. Seems like a reasonable thing to do. God struck him dead on the spot because he said no one should touch it. Korah's rebellion. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in that text, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And the ground split under Korah and all those with him. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with all their goods. So they went down alive into the pit and the earth closed over them. And a few verses later it says, Fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. The next day, Israel grumbled against God for it. They said, you've killed the people of the Lord. What is God's response? 
Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. 14,700 die in the plague before Aaron manages to make atonement and stop it. Wrath goes out from the Lord in an instant. Numbers 25, Israel begins to eat and bow down with the gods of the Moabites. They go to the sacrifices of their gods. Scripture says, Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. Like you can imagine yourself, put yourself in their shoes. Your men, men of your own tribe, perhaps of your own family, hang them in the sun before the Lord. That happened. It's not the only place in the Old Testament. Even under the New Testament, it is necessary to apply the same principle, to learn from their example and draw a line in the camp between those who show evidence of true faith in good works and those who stubbornly persist in doing evil and evidence by that an evil, unbelieving heart that refuses to repent. These things were written for our instruction. Now you might say, but I thought we're not supposed to judge lest we be judged. Should we be judging people as evil, as showing no evidence of faith? Jesus said, judge not lest we be judged. Let's allow all of Scripture to speak on this subject. 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, do you not judge those who are inside? Do you not judge those who are inside? Paul is assuming that we will in the church. He goes on, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Earlier in the chapter, Paul says clearly of a person caught in adultery, I have already judged. I have already judged him who has so done this deed. Jesus says in John 7, 24, do not judge by outward appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. And let's consider Jesus' example in his ministry. What was Jesus' spirit like? He says to the Pharisees who claim to believe in God, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It wasn't just Jesus. John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 7. He saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He says to them, brood of vipers? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
Several verses later, he warns, Already the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Further on, he says, Of God he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus said, I have come to cast fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. These prophets of old had their harshest words for the revered religious leaders of the day. This was astonishing to people because they were more religious than anyone. They had the place of honor. They tithed everything. Many had God's word memorized. They prayed, they fasted, they beat their breasts, they wore sackcloth and ashes. They taught God's word. They made pilgrimages. Jesus says in Matthew 23, You travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Those are Jesus' words. But if Jesus reserves these words for these religious teachers in Israel, and if Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of these people, the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Then how can there be any hope for you, any of you in this room? If those men, the best of the best, Jesus reserves his harshest words for them. How can there be any hope? We look to ourselves, have you sailed oceans and crossed mountains to make one convert to the faith? Do you tithe to the most exacting standard? Do you pray and fast with undying zeal? Have you memorized it, God's word and made it your whole life to teach it, to teach others? Do you live your life and offer your sacrifices up according to the strictest rigor of God's law? Is your spiritual and public worship perfect? Down to the letter of the law, the last jot and tittle. Do you judge with righteous judgment at all times? Have you always had the zeal to cast out an evil person from your midst? Have you grumbled when you thought you had less than you should? When your food wasn't up to par, when you were thirsty or hungry? Have you ever doubted God's goodness, even for a moment in hard times? Have you offered up strange fire? Have you irrigated authority to yourself that wasn't yours to take? Have you partaken in occult worship? Kept close company with those who do not worship the one true God or worship him vainly? I think we all have to admit that we don't stand up to this standard. Cannot meet the standard of God's law. And if any of us have sinned in any of these ways, there's only one thing that we deserve. We must confess the only thing that we deserve by our own righteousness is God's wrath. The wrath of God.
Now, but pastor, I thought you said God is loving and good. I did say that, and he is. It's because God is good and loving that he must pour out his wrath against sin and sinners. If God loves the good, he must hate the evil. You cannot kind of love children and kind of love abortion at the same time. If you love children, you must hate the murder of children. You do or you don't. And God will not contradict himself. You can't love your daughter and then be happy when someone kidnaps her. You would be angry, very angry. And how much more should God be full of wrath when you, when mankind, his creation, who he gave life and breath and everything, we take that life, that borrowed life, and we waste it on evil and sin. We never give him the glory that he deserves. We persist in our wayward ways to our own detriment, pursue eagerly after our own death and love it and revel in it. How could God not be angry? If God is good, when a person stubbornly persists in rebellion against him, God must pour out wrath on that person. As the prophet says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We're all rebels and rogues. There's no one righteous. No, not one. How can any of us be saved? Israel murmured against God in the wilderness just murmured against him. And God sent serpents among them to bite them, to put poison in their veins. And many of them died. Now, have you ever grumbled against God? Have you yourself ever grumbled about your food or your water? Have you grumbled against the man of God Put in authority over you. Is there any hope for sinners like you, sinners like me? Is there any hope for us in our sinful state? We have a snake-bitten, depraved heart. That ancient serpent, the devil, has bitten all of us. We're all sinners by nature after the fall. We've all been bitten by that snake, Satan. And we have poison running through our veins. In Adam, all sinned. You all were born in sin. Everyone. All means all of us. Everyone. No exceptions. We're all that rebellious child. That adopted child who rebelled against his father. This side of eternity will always deal with sin and indwelling sin. And by nature, we all 
speak the doctrine of the devil. We believe the doctrine of the devil. We believe the science of the serpent, the theology of that ancient dragon, that God is not good. We doubt God's goodness. We believe the lie of the devil. What must you do to be saved? Do you need to do penance? Do you need to work it off? Do you need to try harder? Do you need to pay back for the sins that you've committed? Do you need to try harder? Turn over a new leaf. Give it your best effort. Is that all that God requires? Must you loathe yourself and sit in sackcloth and ashes, whip yourself, sleep on a bed of nails? Do like Martin Luther did and sleep with your head on rocks, put them in your pillow? Is that going to keep you from the wrath of God? Is that enough? Can you keep the law well enough? Can you do better than the scribes and Pharisees? Can you tithe enough? Can you give away all that you have? Can you pray enough? Can you do enough good works? Can you make enough converts? Can you memorize enough scripture? If you memorize this whole book, will that save you? Will that justify you? Can you do enough good? Can you keep the law? You can't. Nobody can. There's only one who did. Flee for refuge in Christ. Flee for the hills. Don't stop. Don't try to take anything with you. Flee for the hills before the valley is consumed. God is good. Even in his wrath, he is good. He opened up a way for you, though you were lost in your sin, depraved in your sin, bitten by that snake. He opened up a way when by nature you were children of wrath. While you were yet sinners, Scripture says, while you were yet sinners, not while you were becoming righteous, not while you were reforming yourself, not while you were trying harder, but while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The way God made to escape is not your own working. God is far better than that. He hates evil too much. He loves good too much. Christ is crucified for you. It's done. It's finished. He burned in your place. All of God's wrath was poured out on him. There's not an ounce left for you if you believe in him. When those Israelites were dying from those snake bites in the wilderness, did Moses tell them, hey, uh, try a little harder? Did he give them a five-step plan for salvation? Here, you got to do this, then do this, and then do this, and then you'll be okay. They had poison running through their veins. They were dying. They were as good as dead. Now, what kind of person would tell those people, just try harder, just do better? What did Moses say to them? Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. 
God impaled Christ on a pole for you. God set Christ on a pole for you. So that though you were bitten by that snake, though you believed the lies of Satan, though you spit venom from your mouth, you may be saved. And what do you need to do to be saved? What do you need to do to be justified? What does the text say? Look. It says, look. Look to Christ and be saved. Anybody can look. You don't need to be a doctor. You don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need to know the Bible even. Look to Christ. Look at him and be saved. Anybody can look. Charles Spurgeon talks about the primitive Methodist preacher whose preaching he was converted under. He preached on a text similar to this. The man said, anybody can look. All you need to do is look. See Christ in the garden, see Christ on the cross, crucified for you. Anybody can look. You don't have to be especially intelligent. You don't have to be especially good. All you have to do is look. Christ paid the full debt that we owe. He drank all of the wrath required of us in our sin. Our debt was such that we could never buy our way out of it. We could never pay back for it. We were dead. Poison in our veins. But God sent Christ as a propitiation, a satisfaction for his wrath against sin. See God in his mercy sending Christ. See God in his power and Christ enduring the cross. See his omniscience in knowing all of your sin and yet his goodness in sending Christ to die for you. See Christ paying for every jot and every last tittle that you've broken. See God's goodness and his glory in the cross. Look to Christ and live. Why did Christ come to die if God is not wrathful? Why did Christ come to die if God is not loving and good and gracious and kind? He must be both for this gospel to make any sense. And this gospel call, this gospel of the free grace of God offered up to all men, the call going out to all men, Christ offered up on a tree for your sins. It goes out to all men. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. Christ is crucified for you, sinner. Believe in him. Whoever looks on him, whoever looks on him has passed from death to life. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you for his blood shed on that tree. We thank you that he satisfied your wrath for our sin. So that if we are in Christ, we need no longer fear you as a vengeful and wrathful judge. But we relate to you as a father. And nothing can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, give us full assurance and confidence for those who are in the faith. And those who do not believe me, you turn them to repentance and let them find refuge in Christ that they may not come into judgment. Let's see the light of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.